is Bill, and this is Nonprofit Tangents. It's a podcast all about nonprofits, usually in New York City, um, but occasionally we do interviews with people in other countries. Uh, today, actually, has one of those interviews. Uh, I'm really excited. This is a, the biggest episode I've ever done. Uh, I have three fantastic interviews. We have uh, an epic story of how a woman went from being a successful tax auditor in Texas to currently one of the leaders for global peace in Pakistan. We also have an interview with someone who uh, took a Facebook rant, uh, an Islamophobic uh, Facebook rant, and really turned it into a positive thing called Identify Yourself, which is a project that um, seeks to counter Islamophobia by showing the wonderful diversity and humanity of the Muslim community in America. So my first interview is with Carmen Katerina. She is the founder of Lessons for My Daughters, and I caught up with her on a very, very rainy day uh, in a Queens cafe where I learned more about how the organization got started and um, some of the success that she's already had, even though the organization is relatively young. So with that, here is my interview with Carmen. Lessons for My Daughters. First off, tell me, what is Lessons for My Daughters? Well, firstly, hello, and thank you so much for having me. Um, So Lessons for My Daughters is an empowerment workshop for teen and tween girls. Um, And it's an eight-week program, and it's something that we do in public schools, but also like in community-based organizations. Okay, so how did this, how did it get started? Um, So... Oh, that's a long story, but... Um, that's what we're here for. <laughs> so, I've been in education for almost 16 years now. I started as a school-based speech-language pathologist, but I travel to different schools. So, I really got like a unique opportunity to work in so many different schools in so many different neighborhoods throughout New York City, and it really started getting me to daydream about how I would change education or how would I run the school differently if it was mine and I would just you know have all these thoughts of like wanting to start my own school Um, so actually uh, a supervisor of mine encouraged me to go back to school to get my administrative certificate to basically become a principal or run a school building and so I did that and in that journey I actually started delving into different models of education and it actually inspired me to homeschool my own daughters um, who were 11 and 6 at the time and so I pulled them out of school, we traveled for a year, we drove across the country, we had a really amazing time and I realized like how much we don't learn like sitting in the classroom, how there's so many different experiential ways of learning Um, and so the deal was if they gave me that year to try something really crazy, that they can choose to go back to school if they wanted to, and they did. Um, and so I was left with, you know, what, where do I go from here? I knew I didn't want to, not that I didn't want to be a speech pathologist because that was very rewarding, 
But I also knew that I wanted to do something on a bigger scale. I wanted to be able to reach more people. Um, so a life coach at the time just said to me, you know what, Carmen, why don't you start making some videos on the lessons that you would leave your daughters? And basically, like, in that moment, a light bulb went off, and I was like, wow, that's it, lessons for my daughters. And I thought about how long it had taken me to learn certain things without any solid foundation growing up, because I really... I grew up in a really dysfunctional, toxic environment. For me, school was like a safe haven. It was just a safer place to be than at home. But I wondered like how my life would have been different had I had that support. You know, I had a lot of friends. I got really good grades. You know, outwardly, my appearances seemed like my life was normal. Um, and so I just thought, wow, it took me so long to learn some really fundamental, like powerful things. And I realized like, why don't we teach like a solid foundation of like social emotional learning about how to actually be a happy person, how to have compassion, you know, how to be kind and kind to yourself, which in turn will turn into kindness into others. I realized recently and in, in the way our school climate is, there's so much violence, there's so much bullying. And I think it's because that social emotional piece is missing, like the human piece is missing. My kids a lot of times, like they just wanted to talk, have someone to talk to or vent about their day. You know, they weren't focusing in math and they weren't focusing in social studies because none of it related back to the home life that they were going to. You know, I was really drawn to the inner city. I was drawn to those schools where nobody wanted to work or people were afraid to go to. And I and I loved those places because I, I think I saw myself in those kids. And I thought, if someone just cared about them, if someone just loved them, you know, and, and some people tell me, oh, it's so idealistic. Like, you can't change the world just by loving it more. And, and yeah, maybe not everybody, but I, I really think that it's a good place to start. So, so it's kind of snowballed from there. <laughs> oh, that's great. So your goal, your goal is to make your approach be an in, like integrated into the yes. general yeah. education. Yeah, plan. absolutely. My my ultimate goal is really to change the way we educate girls. Um, right now it's an eight-week program, but my goal is to build it out and really have it be a curriculum that, that's implemented across the country. That, that's like my big dream. So now, so what does this look like? So give me some uh, examples of, of what Lessons My Daughter is, is doing for, uh, how are you empowering uh, young girls? Okay, so for example, when we work in a school, um, one of my big things is getting parents involved. You know, it doesn't always happen, but it's a really big part of the program. So it's an eight-week program, and every week we cover a different lesson. Um, we do topics like just really overall confidence and self-esteem, but just really teaching girls like how to celebrate themselves, how to really, you know, create like a self-care regimen. Um, because I truly believe like if we build someone up at the individual level, that really just spills into the rest of their lives. Social emotional learning is tied to so many things, including academic performance, you know? Yep, absolutely. So many kids today have so much anxiety. Why? Because they are tying their self-worth to numbers on a piece of paper, you know? And so um, just really teaching them that, uh, yeah, of course, it's important to strive to be the best and to be successful, but also that that looks 
that looks different for everybody. You know what I mean? And that's just a part of it. Like so, yeah. academics is just a part of it. So we focus on confidence and. So what's a confidence lesson? Give me an example of your favorite confidence lesson. Um. So for example, like the girls will we we try to do like a lot of hands-on things because I don't like to just talk at them. You know, every every session I really encourage the girls to get involved and you know create like a sisterhood along the way. So one of the things we do is um, the girls will bring in a photo where they felt like the most beautiful and it could be any time in their lives. It could be even when they were a child and the girls like will make a collage and they'll share about, you know, um, why they brought in that particular photo, what were they feeling in that moment, you know, and just really using positive words to describe themselves, like things that we're not used to doing, you know. Um, as girls, we're kind of taught that that's like bragging or being conceited. That was the word when I was younger. But really teaching them that this is something different. It's really about building a foundation of self-love, being able to love ourselves, every part of ourselves, even the parts that we don't love. You know, maybe the parts like that we want to change, that you always kind of have to start from a place of acceptance to be able to you know, make a difference or change something that you maybe don't like, you know. Um, then we also focus on intuition. One of our lessons is intuition. I think that's sort of like this magical sense that we don't really talk about, you know, but the girls like give concrete examples of when, you know, we had just like this inner knowing, like when did you just know something but you don't know how you know it. Um, and just empower them to know that they have the tools to make good decisions. When we play really fun games about figuring out if we can pick the right card, we do this fun like yes, no, maybe game. And we'll ask like a really simple question like is my name Carmen? And they have to pick yes, no, maybe, but you can't see it. Um, and they get a kick out of it. Like they get a real kick out of being, wow, I actually picked it right, you know? And, and then we also focus on self-care and aspects of like our energetic body, you know, and how we are so influenced by the people that we hang out with, you know, the, the movies that we watch, the things that are on the radio, and having them think about like, where do my ideas come from? Like, why do I think the things that I do? Why do I even like the things that I like? And a really cool project that we do during that week is the girls are encouraged to create their own form of like empowering media. Like we'll actually listen to music and say, you know, do you know any songs that are really not empowering for women? Um, and then what are some songs that make me really good, feel good about being a woman? So then I give them the assignment to come up with something based on your own talents. Like what kind of empowering media would you want to put into the world? Maybe it's an article that you want to write about. You know, we talk about movies that are really uh, depict women in a powerful way, like hidden figures, like for example. We talk about how there aren't many women in history books. And maybe, you know, if you took the route of education, you could change that. If you took the route of journalism, you know, you could change something else. Sometimes we forget, like, how powerful, like, we can be, you know, right. like, on our own. So that's just, like, a little bit. That's great. <laughs> that's really cool. And you don't have to mention their names, but who are some of your favorite students that have come through the program or most memorable moments? 
Um, I think one of the most memorable moments I had at Lessons for My Daughters was A, bringing the program to Grover Cleveland High School in Queens, okay. which is where I graduated from. Oh. Um, it was just a huge win for me in so many ways because I was able to get the community involved. For example, Ridgewood Savings Bank sponsored the program. Um, you know, the local newspaper wrote an article about us, and then New York One got wins of what we were doing, and that 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 group of girls really um, they really influenced me because I just see I saw the way that they change, I saw the way their confidence changed, especially when New York One was coming. You know, I said to the girls, "Don't freak out, don't go crazy. I really want you to just." really show up as yourself. I don't want you to, you know, like, think you need to be anything different than what you are. Right. Um, but of course, they were really nervous and, um, you know, they were asked, like, to be on camera, like, if any of them wanted to do an interview. Um, and one of the girls, I was so proud of her because she was also bilingual and she spoke Spanish. So the interviewer asked if anybody spoke both English and Spanish and she was, like, really nervous about it. I'm like, do it. It would be so amazing. Think how incredible your mom's gonna feel like when she sees you on TV being able, you know your mom's gonna be able to understand you because you're speaking Spanish um, and so something that she said really stood out to me she said you know I used to really care about what other people think but now I don't really have that problem I just feel more confident about myself and she gave the, the interview in English and she also gave it in Spanish and you know she came to me afterwards and she's like yeah my mom saw it in my hands and I just thought, like, this is something these girls are going to always remember. Right. And I had something to do with that, you know? And so it's so incredible for them, and it's incredible for me, like, to be a part of that, right. you know? So how, long, so how long, how old is the organization, by the way? It is three years old now. Three years old. Um, and already getting in the newspaper and covered by the local Yeah, media, I good. think for a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, it's such a learning experience. Like, the journey is just really, like, transformational for the person who create you know it takes on a life of its own you know and originally my only focus was the inner city um until there was a really um tragic bullying incident in a in a neighboring community where i live in garden city which is a very affluent community sure. i never thought like I bring my program to garden city you know right. what i mean but i got involved in this conversation in a facebook group about like my views on bullying and what we could do to kind of you know alleviate the problem and this mom who owned a local yoga studio said you know i've been looking for a, a girls program she also had two girls and she was like you know can we talk maybe you could bring the program to the yoga studio and i said oh i would absolutely love to talk and so um you know i think i had preconceived notions about doing something like that because I had no experience with that. I grew up in the city, I grew up, I wouldn't say poor, but you know, like, right. it was hard. It was like, a, you know, my, my mom was a sweat factory worker, so I thought, how could I relate to this group of people, you know? So I was a little nervous, but I, I never let fear stop me, you know? So I said, okay, and long story short, we started the program there. Also, we got um, the local newspaper got winds of what they, we were doing. They've actually written two articles about us. I got so much support from the local moms. I got support from the local legislator there. And it was really, really wonderful for me just to meet other moms like who saw the value in what I was doing. Um, and just most recently, um, I started doing interviews like at the end of the eight weeks. 
and I would ask the girls, you know, what was their um, biggest learning moment and, you know, if they could recommend this to somebody else, like what would they say? And it was just so amazing, first of all, to see every girl willing to be on camera and like be interviewed. Um, and just to hear the things that they said. One girl said she was like a totally new person, like walking out the door. Wow. And um, they just were so, it's just so amazing right. to me. Like just to see their faces light up, to see them encouraging other girls to take part in it. You know, because a lot of kids, um, when it's when it's that way, like in a community setting where, you know, parents are paying out of pocket for something, um, some of the girls are reluctant to come, you know, oh, I'm here because my mom told me to, you know, and um, to see them saying things like, I really didn't want to come, but now I'm so happy that I came, or girls saying, like, I want to take the class again, and, you know, I want to come back to visit, and it's just really, really great, you know, it's really validating, you know, it helps you to keep going. Of course. So, That's yeah. great. Um, well, thank you so much for meeting me and fighting through the rain. And, uh, thank you so much for suggesting it. Very good. If the first woman that God made was able to turn this here world upside down all by herself, then these women here today with our brothers will be able to turn it right side up again. So my thanks to Katerina so, for taking some time on a very rainy day to, to talk to me. Uh, I do want to say, as a former educator, I'm very excited about the mission of her organization. Um, from my own experience, I've seen there's a real drive for increasing test scores, which obviously is completely fine on its own. But unfortunately, I think it does leave gaps in the way that we educate children as human beings. So uh, I'm really happy to see lessons for my daughters kind of stepping into some of those gaps and trying to fill them in and I look forward to her continued success in the future. So I'm going to shift gears here and start talking about my interview with Rubina Ali, I should say Ambassador Rubina Ali from Pakistan. I was very excited to speak with her uh, to learn about something she has called the Global Learning Trust but uh, in the process I really got to learn a lot more about her and the work that she is doing and has done uh, over the past 15 or so years. I asked how the Global Learning Trust got started, and she walked me back to the year 2004 when she was a tax auditor in Texas, and how it, things kind of snowballed, and she got involved in social work and Boy Scouting and uh, all of these different things, and it led her on a path to being a global peace ambassador uh, today in Pakistan, who is doing a tremendous amount of work. So please enjoy this interview with we Ambassador Rubina Ali. And we shall overcome. Power to the women, power to the people. All together. the um, spark that, that began you uh, down uh, this path? I guess you can say uh, what I went through. It's a turning point. 
Um, I was living a very, I mean, I, I should say a perfect life in America. Not a perfect life, but quite luxurious life, I should say. Of course, it wasn't perfect because um, I was having the bad relationship with my husband and um, kids were suffering in it. Of course, there was cases of domestic violence, child abuse, so on and so forth. And at that time, after I got done with everything, you know how you get out of this total mess completely, um, you realize, you know, how, how if you had to go through this and you were so, so... Uh, you were so good at everything and I was a thorough professional. I was educated, you know, I had everything going for me. And if I had to go through the system and I had to see so many abnormalities and my kids had to suffer so much, just imagine what common people would go through, right? So that was my motivation point. And from that point onwards, I started and I still remember and I started with one of the church in America. And I requested them that any cases that you have for domestic violence and child abuse, please refer them because I'm going to set up something there. And I started not for profit. I registered in America for the first time. And um, uh, I don't remember what it was called now. I think it was back in 2004 or something. But then um, uh, at that very moment, uh, we started with two things abused uh, uh, victims and of course second was my motivation was scouting that scouting always had a positive positive impact on my son even though he went through a lot so I noticed that scouting so, I mean, you was say, something when you say scouting was, you're talking about boy scouts boy scouting okay. boy scouting sure. right yeah he was a cub scout and I was a cub master since 2000 uh, I think it was 2003 right so I noticed that even though our life was not perfect, um, but somehow he was getting through it because of these activities, right? It was giving him the spirit. It was holding him up. And um, similarly, my daughter was very young at that time. My daughter was only three years, but my son Daniel was nine years old. And uh, I was uh, I, I used to hate to see him falling apart because of all that. Um, obviously, everybody loves the only child, only son you have. Um, and as a mother, it was very devastating for me. But I joined Cub, uh, Cub Scouting with him as a Cub Master. And uh, then I started seeing confidence and, you know, kind of sense of living and spark in Danny's eyes. And I said, all right, this is the way to go. I'm going to be in the social work and I'll pull it, pull my son and my kids out of this mess. So social work from Cub Scouting was a total inspiration or motivation point for me. And after I finalized everything, total mess of a divorce and so on and so forth, I started my own um my own cubs. I wanted to start my own cub scouting unit, so I registered uh, for not for profit, so that I can get a charter. That's how it all began in America. And uh, as I I started working on that, I realized that um, uh, the church was constantly connected with me, and they start sending me, you know, calling me, letting me know that this this lady is also from Pakistan. She's suffering and she doesn't speak English. So do you mind helping her? And then another lady walked in and she says, well, I have a son. He's in deportation. Could you help him? And then some senior people came and they said, well, we don't have Medicare card. We don't have Medicare card. Could you help us? And then, you know, I realized that they're not getting proper food. So I contacted the food bank and the food bank used to give us the food. And these guys used to show me their social ID card and take the food. And then I found out there are ladies whose husbands have been killed or they are divorced like myself 
who are Muslim or from different countries. Um, they do not have really any jobs or any job security or any future. They've been living with their family and they're living a horrible life. So I pulled them out and I started sending them to nursing institutes. I made a deal with local nursing and paramedical institutes to train these girls so that they can get jobs. Wow, this really snowballed. Know, somehow, so this, uh... Yeah, it just went on and on and on. And you wouldn't believe it, Bill. I think <laughs> within a few months, two to three months, I had 55 board directors and my fees was only $5. Wow. And I think that's where I went wrong because I didn't want to take money from people because I was always a business lady, right? I was an entrepreneur. I used to accomplish things. And I worked with the top Jewish lobby as well. Um, in the mergers, acquisitions, you know, I was a tax auditor and uh, I was really good at my career. It's just my personal life was a mess and nobody knew about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I kept a balance where no one knew what I was going through. Bottom line, um, I realized that when I took my business skills and, motiv- uh, and all of these uh, entrepreneurship skills into social work, yes, it was helping me because I felt powerful and I was able to help people. But, you know, it's not always easy to feed the biz- feed the NGO. And um, my board directors, even they used to come in, they used to ask me, how can I help you? And I used to say, no, no worries. I have it in control. So I was a little bit still in that business attitude where I used to say, I have everything under control. I never took help. And that was the mistake I did for four years in America. Had I taken help, I'm sure I would have been okay. Somehow I realized that I was going down and down and down because I just didn't know what to do. I had so much people who were asking me for help and there's no outlet to get help. And um, that was it, I think. I Then I went to Africa for one of the visits with seniors, seniors, and uh, then I went to Bangladesh with seniors um, from from America. And as I went to Bangladesh, from Bangladesh, I decided to come and visit my dad who lived in Pakistan. So when I came to Pakistan, obviously, once everybody found out that this is not the same uh, Rabina who came in 2004, who was filthy rich and, you know, who had everything going for her. Because, you know, when you're rich, obviously, you have an attitude. That is quite obvious most of the time. Um, So... They came to see me and they found me totally different. That was in 2008, June, when I came here. And in 2004, when I came, I had everything going for me. So uh, there was a major difference between then and at that time. Um, And at that time, when they came, they came seeking help. They said, look, you're doing the social work in America. Can you help us? You know, I don't have a kidney or my daughter is sick or she has cancer or he has TB. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is this? What about the government? Don't they help you? Because, you know, our government in America helps us. They're only phone call away. And only job I was doing was really connecting people. Correct. Different departments in America, social services and so on and so forth. But apparently I came to know that no one was helping them. So I went back, made up my mind that I'm going to move back to Pakistan, which is my home. Obviously, I was born here and my dad is there, too. So why not? I am doing a social work so I can do it in Pakistan. Uh, But before I started all that social work, also in 2004, I made a promise to God. Uh, My daughter Uh, during that the total mess was taking the food out of the garbage can once and she had that pizza slice from the garbage can now it was the same daughter who was feeding the dogs the lamb chops every day 
right? And at that time, I realized that, oh, my God, you know, where was I? What was I doing? Look how poor people live. Right. So and that's wait. when I committed to God. I committed to the divine, whatever you may call it. I said, I said, look, for the next 10 years, that was in 2004. I said to him for the next 10 years, I promise you that I will never, ever do shopping. I will not have any business or I will leave my business um, uh, passion away from me, like that entrepreneurship thing away from me. And I will not socialize. I will not go to parties. I will not be a social bee. And I promise I will not do any shopping for 10 years. If you can lift me from where I just saw my daughter today, of course, she only did it for one day. Then I trained her. But that particular moment was actually a killing moment for me. So obviously, based on that commitment, 2004, 5, 6, 7, so on and so forth. I never made money. Totally, it was for social sector. Totally, it was for social sector. Finally, it was over. And um, 2008, when I came to Pakistan in June, I decided to go back, pack up and come back here. So I did in 2008 of August 14th, which is the Independence Day of my country. I came here. And as soon as I came, I touched the ground and I said, look, I'm here. And I'm going to do whatever I can for this country. And that's that because it's a social work and people were sick and they were so sick when I met them in June and they brought me so many requests that I was amazed. How am I going to help them? So whatever I brought from states, whatever in container, whatever, uh, you know, materialistic things we had, we brought back here and we started our mission from that point onwards. And it's been 10 years now. Me and my kids have been doing this. So you're doing so the, the similar work you're doing now in Pakistan. Yeah, I came, the, yeah, I came to Sindh. I came to Karachi initially. I set up a school there similarly like uh, what we were doing there, except now there are different provinces, the kids from different provinces who couldn't get into school. We were trying to educate them. Then the government of Balochistan, which is a really uh, deprived province of Pakistan, they approached me. I moved to Gawadar, which is going to be the great port in future. So. I came back to Gwadar and we started working there and it is like a jungle. There is no electricity. There was no net for one year. I think after one year we got internet there. Someone gave us a USB, a mobile phone USB, which was like, I don't even know how, what speed it was, but it used to take me 30 minutes to open one email. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, all of a sudden from, the top to the bottom, it was very difficult for us to adjust. There was hardly any electricity. There was a transformer with just one phase. So at night, the lights would go out. There was no gas. We were using cylinders. So, And also, whenever there is a war between Iran and Balochistan border, so the gas wouldn't come. And we end up cooking on the wood, with the wood fire. But thank God to the scouting training of me and my son. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> So I told you everything behind everything. It was scouting, I think. But um, I was ready. And that is because of all of this trainings that if we can survive in scouting, why can't we survive in the real life? Real life is same. You have to get out of luxury to see what brings you happiness. And the happiness we found in the woods. 
me and my kids were very happy in the jungle. For four years, we lived there. So, well, that must have been, I mean, it must have been uh, a little frustrating because you're so used to getting, probably, it probably took longer to accomplish things that you were able to accomplish. Yes, um, yes, considering there's no phone call, forget the landlines. Yeah, I didn't even mention that, only mobile phones. There was no landline to call any government department either. Right. So it was really tough, but I did it. I created schools and schools and schools. I created the Montessori education system. We used to train teachers. We used to train first aid. We used to train emergency preparedness. And then I moved towards Koita. I think after three years, we moved. We left the Gawadar and Pasni locations in place, but then we moved to Koita, which is the headquarter for Balochistan. And there we had... um, uh, we were offered by government two mega projects for nine million dollars because I was almost running out of my funds. You know, like everything we had, we were selling, whether it is an Xbox, whether it is, you know, uh, whatever material we bought from from America, everything had a price. So we were selling and we were surviving and we were making the, the things happen. So we survived. And then in 11, I think we, I moved to Quetta and I went there intentionally to meet uh, chief minister so that he can support us with the government funding, right? Considering mm-hmm. I have done so much work. But then the political leaders, you know, how they are in, in every developing countries, uh, they became a little bit obstacle because they were supporting another NGO there who was taking money from the American embassy on yearly basis for doing nothing. So they were afraid if a, another American would set up with the politicians, then obviously all the money that they're getting won't go there and I'll get it and I'll put it in the right place, right? And nobody likes transparency. <laughs> so um, I didn't get much support from the government. And I ended up meeting uh, UNHCR in Kaita. Um, somehow I told the driver, I said, is there any international agencies in this main city? And my driver took me there and I ended up at the gate of UNHCR. So I requested the gentleman that I came all the way from Gawadar. And yes, I moved from States if he can just help me and see me. I explained him everything and the country director was very nice. And he said, um, Rubina, why don't you move to Koita, set up an office here and we will give you funding. We were looking, we always look for people like yourself. In fact, they even requested I should become an auditor because that was my profession. Um, and audit for us, right? All the projects that we are doing in, in this province, because we know that only t- 10 to 13% goes to the people and the rest is all under corruption. Oh, wow. And I said, look, I would, yeah, it is. And I said, yeah, I would love to do that, but you know what? Let me work at the grassroots level. I need to, I need to see exactly what's going on. It is better if I start sitting in the UN car, then nobody will tell me what's going on. Mm-hmm. Correct. And I said, no, I want to be between the people uh, like I did in Macron, Gwadar Coast. I have to be between the people to know exactly what's going on in the province, where the money is going, who is doing the corruption. I became almost like a research scholar for social and humanitarian workers. And I started researching, finding clues and getting to the places. I even met Taliban's, um, all the group, all the extremist groups. Um, and uh, they used to love my work. They used to love what I do. So anyway, the, the it was Taliban quite dangerous. Quite, yeah, <laughs> because I was educating people there, right? And um, they said, you're doing a great job. 
and um, that was that and um, i still remember i used to go into the places where nobody goes um and i would talk to them say look you know why don't you um work with everybody like um, negotiating sort of conflict resolution um and um, they would listen to me and um so i had really great progress i would make a report i would bring it to the commissioner that look these people are willing to work with us these are refugees in pakistan uh, perhaps you know there's something we can do with them But I did want to share with you the idea that uh, I strongly suggest you visit my website, nonprofittangent.com, to learn more about the people featured in this episode, the uh, Lessons for My Daughters, the Global Learning Trust, and Ambassador Ali, and Identify Yourself. You'll find links to all of those organizations so you can go and learn more about it yourself, including a YouTube video that Ambassador Ali will reference in the second half of this interview. So, yeah, take a moment to check out the website. Uh, and learn more about these great organizations. Okay, here's the second half of my interview with Ambassador Ali. Anyway, I created many enemies, and you know who my enemies were, Bill? Honestly, it sounds like NGOs. well. Go ahead. I don't want to take guess. NGOs. Go NGOs. NGOs. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Because they were jealous Government of the supported. progress that you were making. Ex- exactly. Exactly. Government was supporting me in Quetta. I realized as I stayed there, my bungalow was right next to UNHCR and UNICEF. So I was in a diplomatic place, even though it is the most dangerous place in the entire Pakistan. Um, I lived there with my kids and we created 55,000 youth in one year on that federal government project. How many? 55,000 youth in, sorry, it wasn't even a one year, in six months. And they were starting. When you created. uh, They registered. They registered with us Uh for, um, uh, I mean, I created them to be on the peace path, basically, away from all of those terrorism and whatever it is that they are doing um they exactly in six months total six months i used to travel every day three districts uh it i used to cover in two days three districts there were total 30 districts so i would go and meet up with the dho i would go which is the district head uh sorry health officer i used to meet up with the commissioner district commissioner i used to meet up with the edo which is the education director and then the community so you know how they have jirga system here a tribal jirga system so i would do the jirgas at each district and uh, they would arrange lunch and dinner and all that for me Within six months period, I had 55,000 youth from 18 to 35, 40 years of age following me like bees. They were all <laughs> around me. <laughs> exactly. I had to put 16 policemen outside my gate because people used to come from all over Balochistan to see me for their problems. And I used to see three to 350 people per day. And my institutes were all the high schools. I took over all the high schools after two o'clock, boys and girls high school throughout Balochistan. I took over all the DHQs, which are district headquarter hospitals, where I opened up the nursing schools, which were closed for years, five to 10 years. 
So I opened up 16 nursing schools in, in DHQs. I opened up all the paramedic schools, which were closed. I opened up all the VTCs, vocational technical centers and technical centers, TTCs. Um, I opened them up. And then I registered those 55,000 people and they were t- learning um, lab assistant, medical technician, dispenser, pharmacy assistant. Um, some were doing midwifery course, some were general nursing for three years, some were um, electrician, plumbing, um, uh, mobile repairs, English. I made it mandatory and that was American English. I was teaching American streamlined syllabus they had. And then I had computer basics and computer graphics, beautician and tailoring, dress designing and tailoring. So these were all the trades. Uh, also agriculture, machine repairs and boat making for Macron Coast for Gowadar. So we were offering all of these trade courses for free with the stipend. And that was the nine million dollars coming from the government of Pakistan. But guess what? After a year and a half of effort, I never got the money. Okay, so they promised you the money but never delivered. No. Wow. What happened? Um, I don't know. The government flipped <laughs> and uh, the development fund was called back by the time they decided on my case and I never got that money. So I didn't say anything. At least my job was done. I created a team of 55 thousand people who were at least willing to live their life and not kill people. Mm-hmm. And I think that was an achievement itself. That's an amazing right? achievement. <laughs> yeah, and that included everybody, Balochistan Liberation Army to Balochistan Student Organization to Pashtun Student Organization to Hazara community who are always famous for bombing and so on and so forth. It include a lot of other um, organizations, extremist organization. It included Taliban. It included everybody. I think there were 16 different organizations who I worked with, dropped their weapons and decided to live their lives. Wow, that's a, that is that's amazing. But uh, somehow, you know, um, I didn't know the system very well, Bill. Because I was just so American trusting things and believing on things. And I didn't realize how system works. So I came to the capital of Pakistan, which is Islamabad, asking for my money as to please. I found out that uh, none of my reports were submitted from Balochistan. So that was a shock. And that is it. But such is life. And that was that. I never fought. I never said anything. And I just stayed quiet because I knew deep down that I was on that promise to the divine that I have to serve the humanity. And I did. Coming to Islamabad, I just waited and I waited and I waited. I was in a shock. I got paralyzed. My left side was paralyzed. I stayed in bed for 20 days. From not, from uh, yeah, because not I getting the money. Exactly, you, because I had put in so much work and, you know, it is, it was supposed to be that this stipend should have gone to the kids, right? I promised them. Right. And uh, it didn't happen. Of course, they got the training, but uh, they didn't get the stipend uh, monthly and they were poor kids and I really wanted to help them. So I was shocked. And um, immediately after that, I went into a severe, uh, what was that, uh, nervous breakdown, which ended up into a left side partial paralysis. 
<laughs> that was the toughest moment for me. Um, and I got help. One of the European Union delegations called my PS and my PS told me that somebody wants to see you and they have come from Europe and you need to get up. You need to get up. You need to shape up. And it took me three to four days. And I finally was able to at least come to the point where I could walk. Of course, these people were praying around me for 15, 20 days while I was lying down constantly. They used to carry me in my hand when I used to have those fits of severe nervous breakdown. Anyway, I don't know what happened. It was the prayers, I think, that worked. And then all of a sudden, a good news that a delegation was here to see me. So, you know, sometimes when you are totally down and you see a light, you try to run towards it. And for me, that delegation was like a light. And I got happy that at least there is a hope. Of course, I got better in March. I had an attack in February and I got better at the end of March. And that was it. Of course, I never got any help. But I managed to survive. Came the May, came the June. My NGO was shut down again. The lady left. Nobody was helping me. And I went into isolation by the mountain. I took a house and I just sat there and I pray. I didn't do anything. And um, that was that. And then I think I it's got... It's almost into, worse than... Yeah. It's then almost I think worse than I, nothing happening. Nothing. And then I think I got into... But at least she took me out of bed. So maybe she was just an angel getting me out of my bed. You know. God sends angel in every face and format. I got into religions after that, right? Because I had no idea what to do, what to do with myself. I was lost. I was alone. And uh, I decided just to kill my time till 2014. So I got into all the religions. I studied Muslim, Sunni, and um, a lot of peers started coming. And then I got into divinity and spiritual and mystical and and then uh, I think it was 2014, I got back, back into NGO, of course. Um, I created my institutes again. I created the whole setup again, and I started running and moving forward. I made contacts in Islamabad. People getting started to knowing me that, you know, she is the person who is so dedicated and motivated and so determined. She won't give up. She won't go back. She won't give up, simply. So people started uh, mingling in with me and joining me and uh, I I got to know many provinces because it's a capital where I sit right so it's not just people of Balochistan now I was getting to know people from seven other provinces which are the major areas of Pakistan and people started seeing me my network became bigger and bigger and bigger and all these MPAs and MNAs and uh, that was it so we did that 2014 and 15 and 16. I got back into this NGO and trust. And I think 15, I registered it back as a trust instead of an NGO. And I had the team by then. We ran few, we ran few institutes, few academies. We helped people. I started traveling in different provinces, got to know their problems. People got to know me. Governments got to know me. Their ministers, MPM and A's got to know me. So that was basically a public relation and networking. November of 2015, I gave an interview on YouTube. Someone recorded it and I put it up on YouTube, which talked about global peace. 
And right before that, I think October 2014, when I completed my 10 years, I wrote a letter. I'm sure you must have seen it on social media. I wrote a letter to the entire world that this is who I was. This is how I came from America. Whatever I'm telling you was written in that letter. And now I have completed 10 years of my life and I don't know what to do after that. So I did that interview and I put it on the YouTube and I had a very good response from the entire community who cares for global peace. Right. Um, so from that letter, I also got very good response. And also in 2015, from that message, I got very good response. All of a sudden, I have people and people and people and team of people who wants to help me from all over the world. How can they assist me? It went on from 2015, November to, Dece uh, to 2016, November. I ran into Duke General Leslie Richard Angel through social media, and I requested him that I would like to make have a global peace conference. And now I have an international team. Remember from that letter on YouTube, I have an international team and I want you to be the chairman for that team. And if you can lead that conference to Switzerland, and I wanted all the countries to join hands with me. And he said, certainly, I will help you for the conference. And then I started talking to him a little bit more. We had conversations and uh, he realized uh, what an achiever I am, how much work I have done. And he said, you have done a tremendous job and your people of Pakistan should appreciate that. And then I wrote to him that, I guess, <laughs> no one sees it as an achievement. <laughs> you know, it's only I know and God knows. Uh, so it's only between me and the divine. And I'm so happy because I said, you know, I don't want anything in return. I don't want any appreciation. I just wanted divine to give me the more and more divine power. And then my daughter told me, my 16-year-old daughter, she says, Mom, you know what? I think after everything you have done, you need a little bit respect. Don't you think? <laughs> She's so sweet, you know, and I said, what do you mean by that? So she says, mom, look, he admires your work. He he respects what you have done. Why can't you get a little respect for yourself, mom, in this country? And I said, sure, by what? And she says, tell him to give you a little title. And I said, OK, I'll do that, grandmother. So I wrote to General Leslie. I said, sir, you are Duke. You are royal ambassador. You are serving general. You know, you are um, a foreign minister. You are what, what, blah, 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 blah. Lord Marshal, you are knight commander. I said, you are so many things, you know, with so many badges. Is it possible for me to get a little title from somewhere, <laughs> somehow? And that is also as per my daughter's request. And uh, he said, I'll look into it. And on December 13 of 2016, when I opened my iPad, I was already an ambassador. So that was really a thrilling moment for me. I bet. Wow. Yeah. You know that. Oh, my God. You know, it's not about money. It's about appreciation, I guess, at the end. Right. That somebody appreciates the fact that I've gone through so much. And um, I moved forward and then he said, I will be coming in Feb and I will personally see all your work and I will convince there is a, there is a foundation called Angel Foundation and they are based in USA. 
So they gave me accession, my Global Learning Trust and my NGO in Balochistan. I have accession from them as of December 13th. And they made me the ambassador, right, in Pakistan for their INGO uh, intergovernment organization that they have in Florida. So um, that was the title. So I got two titles. My trust was taken over and appreciated by by an organization in America. And of course, I was appreciated by an organization in America. So that was that. And then the third, I think it was, um, he came here in April. He told me, he says, I would like you to be a deputy foreign minister for Asia for World Humanity Commission. I had no idea what World Humanity Commission is. He said, I would like you to be the deputy foreign minister for World Humanity Commission. And I said, Wow, that is the responsibility for whole. And he said, yes, it is. And uh, I think you can handle it because you are workaholic. In fact, he called me a human dynamo. <laughs> he said, you're a human so, dynamo because I finish one meeting so, and I start the next. I finish one meeting and I start the next. You'll be more productive if you work in the entire Asia rather than just Pakistan. You know, he was trying to give me a broad vision. Correct. Because global peace is about globe. It's not about Pakistan. Correct. And it, even in my interview, if you see it on the YouTube, it says it's not about Pakistan. It's about the globe, how we can save lives and how we can live in love, harmony, tolerance, acceptance. Because that's what we, we used to be. Right. We used to accept each other. We used to live with each other. Whatever happened to that? And that is what divine wants. For us to live in harmony. We didn't come here to create skyscrapers and prados and whatever here the people do, the plots and the lands and I don't know, oil and mines and whatever it is that we are fighting for. We have only come here to live in harmony. And that was the total mission for humans to be on the earth. So, so, so journal Leslie, uh, yeah, so on April 30th, journal Leslie launched my trust again and accepted it as Angel Foundation partner, which is an INGO from state. Also, a, a World Humanity Commission deputy foreign minister, and he announced it publicly and he announced it in the media of Pakistan. And this is how dedicated and committed he saw me. Because I am. I told you, I just work for humanity. I breed humanity. I, I eat it. humanity. In fact, I don't even eat. People force me. They have put a nurse here right now just to feed me. And I don't eat. I just tell her to leave me alone. I'm not hungry. <laughs> anyway, we also gave the peace international peace city key to the mayor. Me and General Leslie went to see the mayor of Capitol. He was not available for the event, so the deputy mayor got the key. So I was able to give uh, Pakistan's Capitol international city title, and that was registered, and he took it back. And now we are working in Islamabad, a capital international peace city, with the city government, local government. Meanwhile, after General Leslie left, April 30th to now, April 30th is my one-year anniversary for being the deputy foreign minister and obviously practicing ambassador because they also made me in August of last year uh, accredited ambassador in residence for Pakistan for World Humanity Commission. 
So I selected. Thank you. So I selected. Um, I selected Pakistan to be the first country to sit as an ambassador, and then eventually I can move forward to different countries. Uh, but this is um, uh, uh, this is what I've been doing, and since then. I've been just doing the marketing, the networking, the public relation. Almost all the political parties in Pakistan are at our platform. All of them have become our members. So that's a plus point. That's huge. Uh, yeah, that's a huge achievement. Uh, of course, tribal communities, including FATA, which is a very much uh, 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 a territory which is under terrorism and, uh, you know, all these Afghanistan war and so on and so forth, um, that also uh, we have the vice chairman now and we are working uh, very much so with them. In fact, I went to visit them and they were the ones who held my whole event on February 28th. And they, these were all tribal leaders and they gave me Dupatta, you know, the chadar around me and so on and so forth. So they did the whole ceremony by accepting me to work in their area. And it is very difficult. They do not accept people to come into their area. You know that how tribal leaders are. So I was accepted by the extremist group, you can say, uh, on February 28th. I think I have done a lot of diplomacy work in a year since last April to this April. So now I was ready to give interviews to the media and to the people um, to tell them that, look, I have the power to bring global peace because once we bring global peace, obviously it is for everyone. It is not for one country. I was very, very pleased that I was able to get an interview with Ambassador Ali. She was very generous with her time. She gave me a lot of information, and uh, the story she told was really wonderful. I hated editing it because there were so many great things that I did ultimately cut out of, of the interview. So I strongly encourage people to go out and, and learn more about her story and the work that she is doing. And certainly global peace is something that I think everyone should be able to get behind. So thank you so much again to Ambassador Ali. And I look forward to continuing to follow the progress of the work that she's doing in Pakistan and uh, in Southeast Asia and hopefully globally. Okay, so uh, one more gear switch as we transition into my interview with Rami Abdul-Amira, uh, who is the creator of Identify Yourself and the co-host of the podcast Translating Muslims. He was a, a really fun guy to interview. I enjoyed talking to him. He did something really remarkable, which was to take a very negative Facebook argument and really spin something positive out of it. And uh, um, it was really interesting to hear how he did that and how that inspiration came around. And uh, to also learn more about some of the stories behind uh, his project, uh, Identify Yourself, and some of the people that he was able to meet and some of the stories that he heard from them that he was able to pass on to us. I have freelance photographer, videographer, and fellow podcaster, Rami Abu Amira. 
I'm really excited about your uh, project. It's called Identify Yourself. So what is Identify Yourself? Before I, I go into Identify Yourself, I think it's worth mentioning where it came from and where it started. So last year, I actually uh, did a photo series. Um, you know, So through photography, I used it as the medium to kind of uh, discuss um, you know, hateful bias towards the Muslim community. And what I did essentially was uh, photograph a couple of my Muslim friends and then also uh, you know, in the age of social media, people love to get into arguments behind their screens. So I actually got into a Facebook argument with someone where he claimed outrageous things like I've read the Quran from front to back, uh, when people have probably spent their whole lives reading the Quran and still don't understand it. The Quran, for those that don't know, is the religious uh, texture of Islam. Uh, and, you know, this guy is saying outrageous things, saying that, you know, uh, inherently that this religion is heinous. And, um, you know, of course, defending my own religion and my own community uh, the way that I thought I can do that is by screenshotting the conversation, blurring out his name and putting it out in public so that people can make their decision about how much of a bigot he is. Um, and he later confronted me in person. And that was really interesting because, um, you know, he wanted to defend himself and say, uh, you know, oh, I'm not a bigot. Uh, you know, I'm not a racist. And I told him very simply, all I did was, you know, put your words out there and, you know, people decided to judge you the way they wanted to judge you. I had no power over that. So, if you're worried about how people perceive you, then maybe you should be more careful with your words and think about the consequences. So um, so that happened in uh, 2017. And, uh, you know, the time came around again where I was thinking, OK, I want to do this uh, this photo series again. I want to continue it. But I really wanted to get deeper into people's identities and really show the depth behind their lives. And I realized that photography probably wasn't going to be the best, best medium for that. And you know, I've dabbled in video and I, I thought that I had, you know, some creative sense about it, but I wanted to learn more. So I took the challenge of, um, you know, approaching video as the medium to, uh, you know, discuss this topic of identity, uh, the identity of, of Muslim Americans. And so I reached out to uh, a number of people um, and uh, yeah, I started this project, Identify Yourself. And essentially it's a uh, video interview with five Muslim Americans from different backgrounds, uh, one being Egyptian, another one being Ethiopian, one Filipino, one Palestinian, and one that's a mix of uh, Indian, Italian, and a few other things. And each of them carry, you know, very different um, perspectives and have gone through a lot of different things. And it kind of shows that, you know, in our strength as a community, I think, is our diversity. Mm -hmm. And I think now we're learning that, um, you know, that is our strength and that, you know, we can band together and create things that other groups of people can't because, you know, we have such a diverse background. And, um, you know, I feel like with that, our potential is limitless. So I was really excited to um, tackle this project and, and really pursue it. How did the, the people you had in the series, how did they react when you first told them about <laughs> what you wanted to do? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's really funny. So, um, uh, you know, one person I reach out to is uh, Rawaida Abdelaziz, and she's a uh, Egyptian-American uh, journalist who works at the Huffington Post. Uh, I met her at a panel discussion, and uh, well, she was speaking on the panel. I was in, I was in the audience, and I approached her later on, and you know, she she had such a way of telling a compelling story, and and, and such a compelling way. I really felt um, you know uh, drawn into her story and her narrative, and the way that she articulated herself. So I reached out to her, and she was more than happy to be part of the project. Um, but on the flip side, you know, I did I did find some uh, skepticism from some other folks. Uh, um, Adam Gagan, who's a actor, uh, later confessed to me during the interview that he wasn't sure that he wanted to do it in the first place, but <laughs> that he was happy that he's changed his mind later on. So 
Um, you know, I think a lot of people, when I reached out to them, saw the value in it. You know, I think they understood that uh, through this kind of creative outlet that there was going to be this um, counterattack versus like hateful bias towards the Muslim community. But in a way, that's not, you know, just like a protest in the street or, you know, a Facebook argument or something where it's so confrontational. This is really you sit down, you watch a six minute video and for a second you get a deep dive into these people's lives and you realize that, you know, they probably had the same insecurities as you in middle school. They probably have the same problems that you deal with now, like rent and pay, getting paid and, you know, relationship stuff and all these other things that are just so normal, you mm-hmm. know, and you realize that they're exactly as human as you are. And that's really just the goal. And uh, I think once they realized that value, they were more than happy to jump on board. Cool. You mentioned you, I don't know if it was part of the interviews, but someone who grew up both uh, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish. Is that one of the people that you <laughs> yeah. interview? Okay. Yeah. So, um, so again, that was Adam, um, uh, again, who's a uh, currently an actor in New York City. Uh, he had a really interesting background. That I was, you know, when I was talking with him and, and kind of uh, drawing the story out of there, he was explaining to me how uh, his dad was Muslim from India. His mom was uh, born Christian. And then his mom later converted to Judaism. So, you know, he personally felt he always felt like he was Muslim by the age of 13 or 14. He felt very confident in that and he didn't really hesitate. But, um, you know, it's it's funny. I actually have that line where he says that his upbringing was like a Neapolitan ice cream. So he kind of got, <laughs> yeah, he kind of got the, um, you know, uh, theology degree before he was 13. Right. And he was exposed to all of these three major religions. But. With his personality type, it didn't really make him unsure or uncertain. It really, I think, was just an experience where he learned from each one. Mm-hmm. And he kind of realized that people come from the same place and the values are very similar. Um, but like I said, he, he felt most closely attached to Islam. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the life he chose to, chose to live. Right. Right. Yeah. I should uh, take a step back. You screened this... Um... I don't, I don't actually. I don't know what to call it. Is that a documentary or what? Yeah, I don't even it? know what to call it either, to be honest. So uh, it's an interview documentary style. It's a document. It's a documentary style interview with uh, a number of folks. So I, I think this is just the beginning of this project. Mm-hmm. Personally, uh, you know, these are five individuals that I was able to put together in like kind of a story that's weaved in. Um, but it was premiered um, a couple weeks ago at a nonprofit's gallery show um, and. That's when I got, you know, my initial round of feedback with pe- from people like in person, um, a lot of creative folks who were either telling me you should do this or you should do that or you should talk to this person um, or you can do this a bit differently. So I took that feedback and now I'm incorporating it into this new cut of my video. So, oh, cool. so the video has not been published yet. Gotcha. Yeah. Can you give us any uh, some some clips, some flavor of yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. things that have happened in the video? Absolutely. I'd be happy to. So this is just going to be the uh, the intro to the video. So um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Perfect. I identify as a blogger, systems engineer, as an Ethiopian American. Identify as a Muslim. As a Muslim. As Muslim. A Muslim. As a Muslim. And I identify as a human being. Did you ask them all the same question? Yeah, so um, I think it was pretty interesting for someone who it's, you know, their first time creating a narrative out of story to also be responsible for directing, editing, um, you know, creating the script, creating the interview structure, 
uh, getting the people, you know, actually there physically. And you had uh, no experience doing all this as you were learning on the fly, right? Uh, pretty much, I'd say. Uh, you know, I did have some people help me along the way, which I gave special thanks to in the credits, you know, with the audio and helping me set up. Mm -hmm. But it was my first time creating a video that told a story. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd say I'd made cute little videos. I have a drone and whatnot. So I made cute <laughs> little videos that are maybe 30 seconds or a minute long and just showed some, you know, nice scenery or something like that with some music overlaid, but this was definitely my first time creating a story. Right. Now it was really, really uh, challenging and it was really exciting and I want to continue doing it. I don't think it's something I want to stop mm -hmm. doing anytime soon. Um, and in that clip, the person who says, uh, identify as a human. So did you ask the, everyone the same question and then that, that was their res different responses? Yeah. You know, uh, not to, not to, I don't know, of course, of course, get too much into the sausage, you know, the sausage making <laughs> or whatever, but yeah, the magic sauce. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I asked everyone to um, start off the same way, just saying I identify as and kind of break down their character to mm -hmm. be different identities. So, um, and she, you know, so people were, you know, very relaxed and comfortable speaking. So, you know, they threw in their own twist in there. So sometimes gotcha. you get, you know, good, good lines like that, where it's like, I identify as a human being. Very cool. Is there any other, any other clips you want to share? Give a, an example. I'll play the clip where he's um, talking about, you know, his, his background of being like a Neapolitan ice cream, pretty much. Okay. Growing up, religion was a very important aspect of my life. And the reason is, you know, my father, he wanted me to be Muslim. He'd take me to the mosque. And my mom, she would take me to church. So he wanted me to be Christian. So uh, when I was 13 years old, my mom, she, you know, she dives deeper into religion. And she decided to convert to Messianic Judaism. Then we started going to synagogue together on Saturdays. So my upbringing, it was like a Neapolitan ice cream. It was like chocolate, vanilla, strawberry, and... And I had it all. So really, it's like a whole theology degree before I was 13 years old. That's what I experienced. Uh, cool. That's cool. So, um, uh, yeah, so I had a couple I had a couple questions kind of about the experience so far. And this is your first step. But um, one is, I guess, one of the questions I thought about is, who would you say is the audience for this? Are you looking to make this video more for the Muslim community to... Um, sort of an empowering video or are you looking to think about this is for non-muslims to also see that they're uh, to the idea that there's more similarities than differences oh, that's a great question um thank you i appreciate that you pretty much say yeah. all my questions are <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah no it's a terrible question yeah, <laughs> yeah call it all right call yeah, it out when it's a terrible question <laughs> uh no i think it's 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 worth mentioning right um i think personally it's so simple to say that I want everyone to watch it, but okay. really I think I'm targeting it towards folks that uh, might not be as exposed to the Muslim community. So I think later on an idea that I'm kind of tossing around. So this video project, since it's kind of like the first segment of it, it's pretty much thrown in your face that these people are all Muslim from the beginning. What the, um, I guess, I don't even know if I want to say what I'm, I'm planning on doing going forward, but um, you know, to be kind of, uh, <laughs> Uh, discreet about it. I'm I'm trying to plan the storyline in a way where it's not as obvious that they're Muslim, okay. um, so that people of all audiences can kind of join in and then later find out maybe that they are Muslim and then kind of have like a ding moment or an aha moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that will be really valuable because you'll realize you know maybe someone will be talking about in middle school when they had a crush and then they got rejected and it's like. Oh, that's I could totally relate to that. Mm -hmm. But then like you later on find out that they're also Muslim and it's like, oh, I can't relate to that. But they also have this similar experience mm -hmm. that I've had. So ideally, that's the that's the type of audience I'd like to get into. But I think, um, 
you know, with the video project, I would also like Muslims to watch it. But I think uh, the podcast, actually, I think that would be more targeted towards Muslims. Okay. Um, or, I, you know, it'd be, again, targeted to both Muslims and non-Muslims. But I think um, the, the, the target audience, I think, is more Muslim-focused for the podcast. I gotcha. Yeah. And this is something that um, when we talked about a week or two ago, you were still wrestling with a little bit. But now that you have had this first step into what you're hoping to turn into a series, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Which I hope to talk about, too, in a second. But have you had it, your own aha right. moments from putting right, this right, together? Right. No, it's, yeah. Um, you were going to say it was a good question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is a good question, though. Um, <laughs> so, personally, I've learned a lot about Islam through this project. And I think oh, okay. I think in a, in a, in a way... It's, it's interesting, you know, as I, I dive deeper into these interviews and the podcast and just interacting with Muslims in this way, in a way I'm becoming closer to the religion or I'm getting close, like closer to the idea of it and the concept behind mm-hmm. it because it's creative and it makes sense to me. You know, like some people, uh, you know, the way that they choose to pray or the way that they choose to become close to the religion might be going to like a like a, pra- a place of practice or by reading the scripture for me, it's through meeting people, and I think right now this project, um, both of them in tandem, is giving me insight into what it means to be Muslim. Um, but I think generally on a more societal scale, we are at a point now where we're seeing a lot of normalization in our behavior and you know, kind of distancing ourselves, uh, or not distancing, but like drawing the line between tradition and modernism and what, what that means to be a Muslim American and realizing that they kind of coexist rather than seeing them as separate entities. Um, and I think a theme that kind of comes up a lot in most of my discussions is the separation between culture and religion and realizing that they're two very different things and that what people see on the outside looking in is typically culture and not necessarily religion. So um, I think when I say that I my goal is to kind of negate hateful bias in the Muslim community, I think it's also distinguishing the difference between culture and religion at the same time. Okay. Interesting. So what's your plans for the future? You want to turn this into a series? What's that going to look like? So, and that's, yeah, that's when it turns, you know, I have to really uh, uh, identify, uh, you know, what it means for it to be a documentary or an interview and like how I'm going to go about it. But my goal, large, large goal, uh, but the, the end goal is to really travel around the country and do the same thing. So you don't really have to fit into any category. It's really just like, Muslims that are like living their lives, which is basically pretty much 100% of all Muslims. So, uh, you know, so just like figuring out like where I can go, who I can talk to and just like following that trail. Mm -hmm. Um, But ideally, I'd like to, you know, like find sponsors or find people that can engage with me on this and like support it. Um, And not so that I can benefit from uh, from it financially, but really to just carve a path with me and kind of create this collective of people that really like get the vision of this and like really support it and can really help me take it to the next level. Right. All right. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So in addition to this, you have also, you're also working on the podcast. Maybe just tell me a little bit. Have you started? Have you, have you started? Yeah. Yeah. Episodes? Yeah. So <laughs> it's funny. So Lina Muhammad and I, Lina Muhammad is a uh, student activist, um, currently at NYU in New York and, uh, me and her, uh, we're doing the interview for Identify Yourself, and uh, at the end of our interview, when I asked her all the questions and we got everything done, you know, me and her had such good chemistry that we kind of um, did this podcast that was kind of stream of consciousness, discussing you know relationships and texting and uh, you know family dynamics and like 
the difference the differences between like the the experience of a man and a woman in the Muslim community today. And we kind of had this free flow conversation, and then we decided, why don't we just do a podcast about this? You know, why don't we just sit down like once a week, have these types of like stream of consciousness conversations? Maybe have a guest or two that join us every once in a while to just spice things up. Maybe we can do some interviews here and there, like video interviews. This podcast is really there to provide a platform for Muslims and for you know for Muslims to have conversations. Um, about topics that you know are relevant to us on a day-to-day basis that other people might not be aware of. And these, what would be so? Give me an example. Yeah. What from the from the <laughs> the Muslim perspective on texting? Like okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you, give me a so little, what that give means? Give us a slice. Right, right, right. So you know the, the thing is again like similar to the video project. It's more just like realizing that Muslims go through the same thing that everyone else does. So I don't know if there's any like Muslim texting problems <laughs> because we didn't really necessarily go into like how Islam or the Quran talks about texting, because I don't think it does. Uh, I'm pretty sure they didn't text 2,000 years ago. But the thing that we did talk about was just like uh, the need. So basically, like through social media, I, I put a poll out and I asked my friends, um, you know, do you, if your partner doesn't text you consistently, like, is that a bad thing? And like, then we kind of discussed that topic and we came to like, you know, we talked about our opinions about it and we wanted to see if... Um, you know, uh, you know, people felt that like they needed constant validation from their partner through text, me- text, te- text messaging, or if they didn't like my side of it was like, you know, uh, I don't need to text you all day. Like, you know, if we're together in person, that's like good for me. And like, I just think I, I find it kind of unnecessary, but then like she brought in some points and some other people like that messaged me brought up some good points. So like my opinion on it has already changed. But like that's the type of conversation I want to ignite. And sometimes it could be like heavily re- related to Islam or it could be just about text messaging. Mm-hmm. But through okay. the lens of two Muslim Americans. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, very cool. All right. So I want to finish up. I want to just ask you, what are the questions I want to ask you? So oh, my our podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> you don't even wait for my question. No, just go fine, for it. I, I, I realized I didn't talk about like what it's called or anything like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, uh, translating Muslims. Yeah. So uh, how do people find that? Right. So identify yourself as the video project and it's not up and published yet, but it'll probably end up on Vimeo uh, very soon. But uh, translating Muslims can be found on Apple Podcasts, CastBox um, or Anchor. Um, but yeah, we just released our second episode with a uh, Yemeni chef from Texas. So we have more cooking um, and that's not a pun because he's a chef, but we do have a lot cooking in the oven and it's going to be an interesting dialogue between Lena and I. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that I haven't asked about that you would like to bring up that we haven't discussed yet? I mean, if there's anyone out there who wants to work with me in any capacity in terms of being an interview uh, interviewee or possibly... Um, you know, running the audio or supporting me in some type of way in terms of uh, being an assistant or something like that. I'd, I'd really appreciate you if you reached out to me. Um, you know, I'm based in New York, um, but I'm very flexible. So if there's other opportunities across the country, uh, feel free to reach out to me about that too. This has been great. Thank you so much for uh, cycling in on a on a hot day and uh, coming to talk to me. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Very good.
And that is it. I'm very excited to have such a big podcast, have so many wonderful people be able to take some time to talk to me. So thank you to all of my guests. Uh, I also want to point out, if you like the music that was in the transitions between segments and um, interviews, uh, that was from an artist named Deza. And I just want to, first off, uh, shout out to her and say thank you so much for letting me use your beautiful music. If you would like to learn more about her as an artist or uh, listen to more of her music or just actually listen to the entire song, please check out uh, on the blog post for this episode our links to her Spotify and and her Apple Music site. So please check those out. Also, you can just look it up, D-A-I-Z-A, and learn more about her. So thank you, everyone. Uh, we'll be back with new episodes very soon that are almost ready to go so i'm excited to have a little bit more consistency with the episodes and some big announcements coming up next episode so please subscribe follow on facebook all that stuff and talk to you soon I want to thank you for being very patient with uh, <laughs> making the interview happen and my uh, various technical issues. Oh, no, at all. Such is life. <laughs> Look forward. You only have technical issues. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true.